0: All right, good time of worship already, church. Was that great or what? We're going to do some more of that uh, in just a few minutes, but I want to I wanna feed your appetite for worship with uh, scripture today. And let me just encourage you, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Just a few pages past the Gospel of John. We've been studying the Gospel of John for about a year now, and, and we're going to take a break from John this morning, and we're going to look at one of the most epic and glorious passages in the Scriptures. If you could imagine the Scriptures as a, as a mountain range with numerous majestic peaks, What we're going to look at today, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is one of the most majestic peaks in the Bible. It is glorious what Paul writes about in these pages. And here's the reason it's so memorable. Here's the reason it's so epic. What what Paul does here is he juxtaposes Christ's humiliation with Christ's exaltation. And he, he puts them today in such a wonderful way that it's a reminder not only of Christ's humility and the, the self-sacrifice that he demonstrated for our behalf, but also what came after that and the great exaltation that he experienced. The reality is that Christ got really, really low for us. That's his humiliation. That's what the cross represents. Really low. But then afterward, and you, you'll see the transition as I read this, passage in just a second after that being really really low Christ is exalted highly 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 higher than any other person and, and even there's a case to be made higher than he was before his incarnation and his death and his resurrection he was highly exalted as a result of what he did for us and the apostle Paul says it this way You can read this in your Bibles. You can read it on the screen as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Church of God, this is the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen, church. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Jesus Christ, who is highly exalted by God, the father. One of the things that you need to know about Christ. The first thing that Paul tells us here is that Christ was brought low. We spent some time on Good Friday a few days back, uh, trying to flesh this out, what it means that Jesus was brought low, and so low, in fact, from the cross that he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what went, what Christ went through on the cross, quite frankly, was awful. It was tragic. It was humiliating. And to add insult to injury, Christ wasn't just punished. Punished unjustly by the, the people who crucified him. He was punished by God the Father. He was forced to bear the brunt of our sin. And to, this is how we say it here at Harvest, to absorb the wrath of God into himself in order that the wrath might be averted from us. He absorbed that into himself. And on the cross, in a very real sense, there was separation from God the Father to God the Son. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was horrible. It was horrible. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he endure that? Why would he endure that kind of suffering? Well, we, we looked at this at Good Friday. Those of you who were here, remember what I said. You can read this on the screen. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died the death. We deserve to die so that we might escape eternal death and have eternal life. Amen, church? Is that true? He did that for us. And the Apostle Paul profoundly captures the humiliation of Christ's death in this passage. And here's what's interesting in this passage. I don't have time to go into this this morning, you know, just develop the context of what Paul is writing in the book of Philippians. But but this whole doxological discourse in Philippians 2 is kind of an aside it's an excursion from what paul is writing in the book of philippians because paul says at the beginning of philippians 2 to the church of philippi here's the essence of what he's saying to the church be humble be humble be humble again and again he said be humble be humble here's the thing you see the church in philippi it was a good church it was a good church that paul was writing to but but they had a unity problem. They had some divisiveness within the church. And specifically, there were two sisters in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. You can read about this if you read the entire epistle. These two sisters were fighting in the church. Does that ever happen at church? No, Pastor Tony, that never happens. Yeah, it does happen sometimes. These two women, these two individuals were fighting and they were compromising the health and the unity of the church. And Paul sent Timothy, and he also sent another man named Epaphroditus to Philippi to check on the church, and they brought back these great reports about the church and how faithful they were. But they also said, yeah, you know, the church is good, Paul, but there's, there's some infighting there. There's some people who aren't getting along, and it might, it just might compromise the health And the unity of the church. And so one of the things that Paul is emphasizing in this letter is be humble, be humble, listen up, church, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. And so one of the things, and so you can even see this in verse three, look at chapter two, verse three in your Bible. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself, church. Then he says in verse four, let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So, so Paul, that that's the context of what Paul is writing. And then Paul goes on this epic rant about how humble Jesus was as if to to shame the congregation. You're fighting. You've got these little things going on. Do you realize how humble your Lord is? It's one of the greatest rants in human history, Paul, in verses 5 through 11, shaming the people, and it it boggles the mind, really, as you read it, just how humble Jesus was. And so Paul says, verse 5, to the church, this is a command, have this mind among yourselves. What mind? What mind does he want them to have? The mind of Christ, the mindset of humility and self-sacrifice. He's saying, do this. Church, listen up, Iodia and Syntyche. Listen up, church in Philippi. Listen up, Harvest Decatur. You be like Jesus. You be like you be humble like Christ was humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. Be humble like Jesus. And to that, you might say, Pastor Tony, I can't be as humble as Jesus was He's better at that than I am. And of course, you're right. Of course, you're right. We cannot be as humble as Jesus was, but he's our example. He's the standard. You might say, I'll never be as humble as Jesus. And to that, I'll say, you're darn right. You won't. But we struggle for our entire lives on this side of eternity to approximate what Jesus did. He's the standard. He's our example. This is a lifelong pursuit. And as I talked about last week, you know, this, this is something that the Lord wants to produce in you. He's the vine; We are the branches as we're anchored in, into him. The Holy Spirit is doing that work inside of us, humbling us and making us more like Jesus. So humble. And you might say to that, okay, well, how humble was Jesus? How humble was Jesus? If you are asking that, I'm glad you asked because Paul's about to tell us. And I'll say this before I get into the, the nitty gritty elements of this passage. You don't know how humble he was. You don't, not yet, you don't really know what it costs Jesus, the extent of what he went through in order for us to be saved, in order to do something self-sacrificial on our behalf. So so buckle up, because here we go. Let me, let me do my best to try to explain. I don't even get it totally yet. I'm still working on it. So Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, here's the humility. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word form in the Greek is the word morphē and it doesn't It doesn't mean that Jesus was God like or God ish form. It means that in his nature, he's God. That's who he is in the form of God. He's not made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. That's clear from Genesis 1. We're made in the image of God. Jesus was not made in the image of God, Jesus is God he's the form of God. And and by the way, if you read the church fathers, as I've done this week, they go nuts on this passage, talking about the difference between form and image. Jesus is the form of God. We are in the image of God. Don't get those two mistaken. He is God, God himself. And yet Paul says he's in the form of God. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't cling to his nature. He didn't Cling to his sovereign power and glory. Instead, he willingly set that aside in order to receive this assignment that God the Father gave him. And this is the assignment God the Father gave him go down to earth and die for those wretched, sinful little human beings that we created that are rebels. And Jesus did it. God the Son agreed to do that. Why did he do that? Because he loves these little rebels these sinful, wretched creatures that he created. He loves, do you know that? Do you know that he did this out of love for you? Humbled himself in this way and died for you. So the God of the universe, Jesus, he didn't hold on to his dignity. He didn't hold on to his, his estate, as supreme God of the universe. He didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, to be, He willingly set it aside. In fact, here's the way Paul says it in verse seven: He emptied himself. Everybody see that in verse seven? He emptied himself. Have you ever seen those movies where you know you you get like a a tough guy, and he's got to remove all of his weapons, and it just goes on for like ten minutes, taking weapons off of him? You've seen a movie like just as an example. There's a scene in Pirates of the Caribbean. Where Kira Knightley's character, Elizabeth, she has to remove her weapons for some meeting. And she's got a gun in this pocket and a gun in this pocket and a bomb over here and some knives stored away over here. And it just takes forever to get rid of all these weapons. That's kind of how I see Jesus emptying himself right here. Here's some sovereignty. Here's some glory. I'm setting this down. It's taking his six shooters out, laying them down. All right. I'm clean. I'm emptying myself. Why? For the benefit of humanity. I'm going to be humbled. I'm going to set aside my power for a season. I'm even going to allow myself to be born as a, as a human being and be suckled by the mother Mary. It's, it's amazing to think of God doing that, willingly allowing himself to go through that, that little bit of humiliation. And you might say, well, okay, does that mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity then, Pastor Tony? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That, by the way, is an impossibility. You, you know, Jesus can no longer can can he, he can't be any less God than you can be any less human. That's who he is in his essence. But he set aside instead these these aspects of his deity. Here's how John MacArthur says it. I found this helpful. MacArthur says he didn't give up any of his deity, but he gave up the free exercise of those. Attributes, is laying six shooters down in order to save humanity. The free exercise of those attributes, and he limited himself to the point where even in Matthew 24, he says, no one knows when the son of the man returns. I don't even know, Jesus says. I've set that aside. Only God the Father knows. He restricted his omniscience. He gave up the prerogatives of his deity. I think, I think that's helpful. That's how he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself in this way. Let's keep going. Because this emptying is even more than you realize. There's more going on here than just him being born as a human being. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Form of God, form of servant. That's that same Greek word that I mentioned earlier, morphe. Jesus was the form of God, still is the form of God. And he took on the form of a servant. Jesus didn't stop being God, but he took on humanity. And the God of the universe became a human. Has, has anybody ever demonstrated that much humility in our world? Well, there's some humble people in our world. There's some humble people at this church, quite frankly. But, but we don't come close to this. And the word servant is key here because, you know, you think about Jesus' birth. <clears throat> think about what he did. He wasn't, he wasn't born in a palace, right? He was born in a barn with animals. And he wasn't born into Caesar's household. He was born to peasant teenagers in the backwaters of Israel. His dad was a carpenter. And Paul says this God, Jesus Christ, took on the form took on human form and was born a servant. By the way, let me ask you this. Let me see how much comic book trivia we can get right here at Harvest, okay? Clark Kent, right? Superman. Was he human? Was he human in those comic books? There's a lot of confusion on your faces right now. I don't know if you know, was he, was he now? No, he wasn't. He was from the planet Krypton or whatever. He was just pretending to be human, right? And then nobody was the wiser about his little disguise and his alter ego, which is crazy when you stop and think about it. And I I mentioned that this morning. Why do I mention that? I realize that, that that's fiction, but I think some people think of Jesus that way. Just pretending to be human. Just pretending here, you know, he wasn't really a man. He didn't really become a man. He didn't really suffer as a man or die as a man. And that's just not true. That's not what Paul is saying here. That actually, that view of Jesus pretending to be a man and just kind of coming down as a God and not really taking on human form, thats actually an ancient heresy called docetism that the early church stamped out. The early church stamped out any heresy that didn't say God, Jesus was fully God and fully man. By the way, there's the opposite heresy that uh, affirms Jesus' humanity, but they deny his deity. That heresy is called Arianism, and there are still Arians in our day. They've probably come to your door. They're called now Jehovah's Witnesses. Paul doesn't allow for Arianism in this passage, and he surely doesn't allow for Docetism. Because Christ was, and Christ is, fully God and fully human, and part of his full humanity involved a real incarnation in, 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 in body, with, with human features and real human suffering. He was humbly and truly born in the likeness of men. And if that wasn't humbling enough, are you getting a sense for how hum- humbled, how, how humble Jesus was in this, this passage? It's even, it's even more humbling than that. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the, point of, to the point of death. He allowed those creatures he created to kill him. But even more than that, even death on a cross so not just death not just execution not just you know hanging but but death on a cross which is you know that's not a run of the mill execution just so you know he endured the most pernicious the most cruel form of execution ever invented namely crucifixion he allowed himself to be tortured and humiliated on a cross I'm sure after reading this, Euodia and Syntyche were totally shamed by this. And they're like, you know what? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I've been irritable with you. Please forgive me. I can't believe we've been so prideful after Jesus did that for us. I, I don't know. I mean, there's no second Philippians, so we don't know how they responded to to Paul's writing. But I assume that's how they responded Because how can, truly, as a Christian, how can you hold on to your grievances? How can you hold on to your unforgivenesses? How can you hold on to these things when you read a passage like that about what Jesus has done for you? It's like, man, I've got got nothing. I've got no reason at all to ever hold a grudge against anybody ever again. And maybe there's someone in the room right now here who, in light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of what Paul is writing right here, you need to let some things go. You need to forgive in light of what Jesus has done for you. You need to set your grievances aside and humble yourself because Jesus humbled himself like this. Is there somebody like that in this room? Is, I'm not a prophet, but some of this stuff, whew, it cuts to the quick and you're convicted. And if you're feeling that right now, if the Holy Spirit is after you about something like that, then you deal with that. Why? In light of what Jesus has done. Humble yourself in light of what Jesus has done, the humility that he showed. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. This is our first point. I know it's taken me a little while to get there. It happens sometimes. We're going to keep it nice and simple today. We're going to look at the past, present, and the future state of Jesus Christ. What Christ was, what Christ is, and what Christ will be in the future. Let's start here with what Christ was. Christ was forsaken. He was forsaken. He was forsaken for our forgiveness. He was forsaken for our benefit. He was humbled in the incarnation. He was humiliated at the crucifixion. And he was forsaken by God the Father at the cross so that he might assuage God's wrath and pay for our sin. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why we gather for services like Good Friday. That's why we take communion and and, and eat the bread and, and drink the cup and remember what Jesus has done for us, that great sacrifice at the cross. Now, this is where Paul's rant goes in an entirely different direction. Paul has just given us this incredible statement of Christ's humility, and he did it to exhort the church of Philippi to be more humble and to imitate their Savior, Jesus. But now, you know, this little aside of Paul's, this little illustration takes on a life of its own, and Paul Paul just goes nuclear with with his doxological statement about Jesus. He takes his readers into the doxological stratosphere of who Christ is and and where he is right now and his glory right now. It's almost like Paul says enough of all this talk about Christ's humility and his forsakenness. Let's talk about where Christ is now. Let's talk about his glory right now. And so Paul says this, look at verse 9 in your Bibles, Therefore, and that's a key word right there. Paul's about to pivot. Therefore, with all of that background about Christ's humility, therefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore God the Father has literally super exalted him, Paul says. That's what the Greek means here. The word that Paul uses here is a word that only shows up once in the New Testament. And the word is hooper oopso. It's probably a word that Paul invented, hooper oopso. And it's a combination of two words hooper, which means hyper or super, hyper, and then a hoopso, which means exalted. So hooper oopso. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say hooper oopso. Highly exalted. Highly exalted. It's almost as if Paul, as he's writing, he's like, Hoopso is not big enough. It's not good enough to just be exalted. Christ wasn't just Hoopso. He was Hooper Hoopso. He was highly exalted. You don't even know how high he is exalted. God, God the Father has taken him to a place that is so high and so elevated. That's why we gather on Easter Sunday and we sing and we worship him and we praise him and we think about The greatness of what he's done for us. Because of what Christ has done for us, God has highly exalted him. And what does verse 9 say? Bestowed on him the name Jesus. Jesus. The name that is above every name. Write this down as number two Christ was forsaken. Christ was past tense. He was forsaken, but he's forsaken no longer. Christ is exalted. Christ, You can write in super exalted if you want to, just to, to, to sink that in your brains. Christ is present tense, super exalted. Even right now, he's exalted. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, full of glory. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Miracles. He said, in the Christian story, God descends to re-ascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very root and seedbed of the humanity which he himself created. But he goes down to come up again and bring ruined sinners up with him. Christ goes down low, 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 but he's raised up and exalted higher higher than ever before after his death, after his resurrection. Now there's great irony here in verse nine. Let me just drill down on this a little bit further. There's irony in verse nine because it's, it says that God has super exalted Jesus and given him this name that is above all names. I think linking that name Jesus with Yahweh is what he's talking about here. Isaiah 45 speaks about this. But uh, but let me just tell you, in terms of linking Jesus with that name Yahweh, Jesus, here's the irony, Jesus is a very common name, especially in the, the first century world. It, it's equivalent to Joshua in Hebrew, and that name was really common in Jesus' day. There were a lot of little kids named Joshua, and why wouldn't there be? I mean, every, every other Jewish family wanted to name their kid after Joshua, the great hero of the Old Testament. So there, you know, Joshua here, Joshua there, jo- you know, every, every Tom, Dick, and Harry had the name Joshua in, in Israel. And yet God has taken, here's, here's the irony of it. God has taken that common name, and he's made it majestic! The name of Jesus. People 2,000 years later gathered so many miles from Israel singing and praising the name of Jesus. It's amazing that that happened. He's taken this name, linking it with Yahweh, and he's made it the name that is above all other names. Even so much, in verse 11, says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's amazing that 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 common name, Jesus was bestowed this great honor. You know, ever since Alistair was a, a little guy, we have tried to impart to him how precious and how beautiful and how wonderful the name of Jesus is, even singing those songs as he was young. And I hope you're doing that with your kids. I hope you believe that in terms of who Jesus is the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord. In our minds, the name of Jesus should convey power. Does it? It should convey comfort. Jesus. Does it? It should convey joy and majesty. I see that not just with my son, but with some of the other kids at Harvest Decatur. That name is precious to them. It's precious to them. Is it precious to you? You know, we we talk here at Harvest about lifting up the name of Jesus in worship. We call this unashamed adoration. How's that going? here at church. You guys know this about me. I I like to watch sports on television. And to be honest, yesterday I got I got pretty excited about basketball about Chicago Loyola playing Michigan and Kansas playing Villanova. If you don't know who that is, you're probably better off not knowing. But you know, I got I got amped up and and one of the things that I see when you watch sports on television, maybe you've seen this too, is unashamed adoration. Am I right? I mean, people who absolutely act ridiculously in support of their, their team, their, you know, in some, in some instances, a lot of instances, it borders on worship, but at least it's, it's unashamed adoration, unashamed adoration for their sports teams. And You know, for the most part, I I love that enthusiasm that they demonstrate. Let me ask you this, though. Of which basketball team has it ever been said, therefore God has highly exalted that team and given them a name that is above every other name? Did God ever do that? Of which football team or hockey team or baseball team or college or professional, whatever, Which of those has God ever said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I'm saying that just to illustrate the fact that if they can get so excited about that about fill in the blank sports team we can get excited about Jesus in this place, can't we? We can demonstrate a little bit of unashamed adoration for the God of the universe for Jesus who has the name that is above all names. And I don't I know I'm your pastor here. I'm not rebuking you. I think we've got that here at Harvest. I'm trying to encourage more of that and more of that. And when we show up on Sunday, maybe, some, maybe that's odd to some of you. We're not here just whistling Dixie till the cows come home at church, all right? We're not just punching a ticket. We are praising the God of the universe. We are worshiping Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are worshiping the Lord who is high and lifted up and exalted and we're going to keep doing it. And we're going to keep doing it. Are you going to keep doing it? We're going to keep doing it. Until Christ comes back or calls us home. Until these these, these lungs can no longer sing. Until this heart it stops beating. That's what I'm going to keep doing. Because he's worthy of that unashamed adoration. God the Father has highly exalted. Jesus given him the name that is above every other name. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted, high. Hallelujah, what a savior. Go ahead and write this down as number three. Christ was forsaken. Christ is exalted. Christ will be worshiped by all. Watch how Paul closes this passage in verse 10 and takes it to its doxological conclusion. Actually, I'll read verse nine just to get a running start at verse 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. On heaven, in earth, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Those in heaven represent the angels in heaven that minister on God's behalf. The angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, they already bow before him. They always have. The beings on earth represent humanity and all creation. They will bow before him, regardless of people's Eternal destiny, whether they're believers or unbelievers, every knee will one day bow before Jesus, acknowledging his lordship. And those under the earth, by the way, that third designation, those are fallen angels, including the devil. They are not under the earth in the sense that they're, you know, corporeal beings running around in the core of the earth. Uh, They're metaphysical spirits and they don't occupy space like humans, but they are banished. Out of the throne room of heaven, they're restricted to the earth and other places like the abyss, the scriptures say. And Paul says, even those rebellious beings will be forced to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They bend the knee along with all the rest of creation. And to that, you might say, this is a question that comes to mind as you read this. You say, when is that going to happen, Pastor Tony? Because that sure ain't happening now. People aren't bowing the knee before King Jesus. People are openly defiant of God in our day, increasingly so. So when's this going to happen? And when is every tongue going to confess that Jesus is Lord? Because that sure ain't happening right now. Well, the opposite is happening. You know, people might call Jesus a good teacher or a, a, a good person but confess him as Lord, as Yahweh, as the God of the universe. That's not happening right now. You're right. You're right. Even though God has exalted Jesus, even though Jesus has already been raised from the dead, even though he sits at the right hand of God, the father, that doesn't mean that every person right now acknowledges that or even believes that that's, who Jesus is and where Jesus is and what he's doing and who he is. But they will. They will. The Bible says this in Matthew 25. These are actually the words of Jesus before the crucifixion. Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory, Jesus talking about himself, talking about his second coming. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne, his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus will turn to those on his left, the goats, as it were. Have you all heard of this before, the sheeps and goats judgment? Then he'll turn to the goats, and he'll say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus says in verse uh, 46 of chapter 25, these, these goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is what's referred to by theologians as the great white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment. And this is the final judgment. This is after the tribulation, after Jesus' return, after Jesus' millennial kingdom, after all of that, there's a judgment. And it's during this time when the final ruling is given for every human being, every demon, every angel, every living creature And it's at that judgment, I believe, that every knee will bow before Jesus. Every tongue will confess in that moment, whether their eternal destiny is with the Lord or not, all of them will confess that Jesus is Lord. And there won't be any way to deny it. He'll be on his throne, he'll be judging everybody. So they won't be saying it by faith like you and I are doing it right now. Their faith will be sight. Of course, he's the Lord. Of course. He's judging everybody. And in that moment, I believe, everybody will acknowledge his lordship. Every tongue will confess it. Every knee will bow. Everybody will be terrified about their eternity and will be worshiping the Lord. And Jesus says about those who are doing it in that moment because of sight, not by faith. They didn't acknowledge Jesus when they could on this side of eternity. Instead, they're doing it because they have to. Jesus says that they will go away to eternal punishment, verse 46. They will be cursed and sent away into the fire prepared for the devils and the angels. Don't take my word for it. Jesus said this. So let me put these passages together. Philippians 2 and Matthew 25. And then we'll be done and we'll worship. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that one day Christ will be worshiped by everybody. Every knee will bow before him. But I want to be clear about this. That doesn't mean that every person will be saved. Are y'all with me on that? That doesn't mean that every person will be saved. Matthew 25 makes that clear. Just because everyone will worship Jesus doesn't mean that everybody will will be saved. Only those who embraced Christ by faith on this side of eternity will be saved. Everybody tracking with me? So here's my final statement. Here's the last thing I want to say. And I say this because I I love you and, and I want you to be on the right side of eternity when God separates the sheep and the goats. I don't want to wait till the white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment to start worshiping Jesus. Are you all with me? I don't want to wait till I have to, to do that. Because quite frankly, it's going to be too late at that point. It's going to be too late. To enter into the kingdom of heaven, to to receive forgiveness for my sins, I want to. I want to do that now. I don't, I don't know about you, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Do you believe He died for your sins? Do you believe that? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and that even now He sits at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ, do you believe that? Jesus Christ is the Lord. Why don't you just say that right now? Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Say it like you mean it. Let's say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't want to wait till I have to say that in the presence of God, the son in all of his glory while he's judging people. I want to say it now. I want to, I embrace it now his death as payment for my sin. And I want to worship him because of his humiliation for my behalf, but also his exaltation, his resurrection, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is glorious and he deserves to be gloriously worshiped. Let's bow in prayer. We're going to sing in just a second. The worship team's coming up right now. But before we do that, can we just physically bow before the Lord this morning, Easter Sunday, 2018? For those of you who are able right now, I want to encourage you to take a knee and bow before the God of the universe. Get a head start on what we're going to be doing in eternity. If you're unable to take a knee right now physically, then, then maybe just sit forward in your seat right now and bowing your head before Jesus. In whatever way you can, let's just indicate with our posture. Let's indicate with our posture that Jesus is glorious and worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship Jesus we bow before you we take a knee we humble ourselves before the God who died for our sins. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's confess that again, church. Jesus Christ is Lord. We worship you in this place. Jesus, we believe your word here that says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We don't want to wait for that every day. We don't want to wait for that future when every creature will be forced to worship you. We want to do it now in faith, in love for you. We confess you as the Lord of our lives. We confess you as our Savior. We confess you as the God of the universe.